0: Nikki is a senior communications leader at GE Aviation in their military systems operations group. She was a combat pilot, an Air Force Academy graduate, an All-American rugby player, two-time national champion, a wife, a mom. She ran for congresswoman a couple times. I mean, she's one of my favorite guests. And in this episode, Nikki talks about her journey, her journey being a daughter to immigrant parents and how her path led her to the Air Force Academy and ultimately how she got to be a combat pilot. Now, ever since I was introduced to a couple of my favorite characters of all time, Maverick and Goose, I have been fascinated by aviation. So it was such a treat for me to discuss all the different aircrafts. And Nikki talks about how she found her way to flying KC-10s and MC-12s in the Middle East. And in her service for her country, Nikki has flown over 3,000 hours and commanded more than half of the 200 plus combat missions where she flew over Iraq and Afghanistan, I don't think people really understand how hard it is to get an Air Medal, but Nikki Foster has earned eight of them. I mean, she is truly extraordinary. And in serving her country, we talk about how hard it was on her as a mother and how leaving her 18-month-old for an extended period of time, how much that took a toll on her as a wife and as a mom. And we talk about the importance of mental health and of vulnerability and humility and ultimately her strength. I am so grateful that Nikki shared her story, and I'm grateful for her service, and I'm incredibly inspired by her integrity. Please enjoy this conversation with the remarkable leader, Nikki Foster. Hello, Nikki. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, no, I am thrilled to have you on. It was serendipitous that when I reached out to you that you were actually a listener to the show, which is the first time that's ever happened. So (laughs) I was super excited about that.
1: That's right. It's pretty amazing to be able to share thoughts with you. And it's great to be a listener, too.
0: Well, thank you so much for your support. There are so many, so many, so many questions I want to ask you. You're my first combat pilot that I get to interview. And I have all the questions related to that. But my listeners have told me many, many times that they love this part of the beginning of the story of really where people grew up. So if you don't mind sharing where Nikki Foster grew up.
1: I grew up in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. in northern Virginia. It was a small town called Centerville, but it grew. It's basically on final approach of Dulles Airport in Virginia. I was raised there with my two siblings, Brian and Heather, by two parents. They're both immigrants. My father is an immigrant from the Philippines. He is a mixed Asian. He is half Filipino, half Scottish-Canadian. My grandparents met during the war, and he immigrated to the U.S at the age of 16. And my mother is also a mixed Asian American immigrant, but she was born in Amsterdam in the Netherlands to a Indonesian father, my grandfather and my Dutch grandmother. And so they met and fell in love in Holland and then immigrated here to the US in the 60s. And my mom migrated from Massachusetts to the DC area where she, she met my dad. So they raised us in Northern Virginia, the melting pot of the East Coast.
0: How did you choose the Air Force Academy?
1: I always knew I wanted to serve. Being the daughter of two immigrants, I kind of was always drawn to the promise of what America can be. You can come here and be educated, learn new things, and meet different kinds of people. And that spirit of America, liberty, freedom, I wanted to protect it. And I heard that there were these great opportunities at service academies. And originally, I considered West Point. But my mom worked with a lot of folks in the Air Force. And I quickly learned the Air Force mission and the ability to maybe fly someday. And I was very fortunate that when I started applying, that the Air Force Academy women's soccer team and the coaches started recruiting me because I was also a soccer player in Northern Virginia. And it just turned out that Air Force was the right place for me, is that it is this perfect connection of wanting to serve and then also getting to play sport. And that's how Air Force came to be. I will tell you when you go to visit, you see these sharp rocky mountains piercing the blue sky. I mean, there was nothing like it. When you grow up near Deciduous forests in Virginia, you just never imagined this vast space of the Air Force in Colorado Springs. So when I went to visit. I just knew I had to go to school there.
0: I love that. Well, so you mentioned that you went as a soccer recruit, but you ended up playing rugby. How did that happen? That's
1: right. If you're not super familiar with service academies, the way it works is you graduate from high school, most likely, not all candidates, but most, and within weeks, you're headed to boot camp. And boot camp is for six weeks during the summer. When all your friends are having graduation parties and hanging out in the summer, you are literally starting boot camp, getting screamed at off the bus, learning how to dress, learning how to eat, learning how to walk in formation and learn how to run as a team. And when you graduate from boot camp, you become a fourth-class cadet. You're now a freshman at the Air Force Academy. And that's when soccer tryouts started for me. It was after boot camp was over. And I was a little fatigued from boot camp, and I just didn't have my best tryout. And I ended up getting cut after a week of tryouts. And I was super disappointed. But the coach offered me an opportunity to be a player coach or a manager, and I said, thank you, but no thank you. I hear my roommate's going out for rugby, and I'm going to try it out. So I did, her name was Jess Regney. She's now a Lieutenant Colonel in the Air Force and we've been friends ever since, but we came from the same county and I followed her to the rugby field. She's about five foot nine. She's a tall girl, I'm five foot two. But I'm in rugby, there's a position for every body type. And I walked on as a freshman and my freshman and sophomore year, we were fifth in the nation. I was a wing, so I played on the outside. Very similar to your NFL football. If you like American football, it's like your cornerback or your wide receiver. I played wing, left wing. And by my junior and senior year at the Air Force Academy, we were national champions against Penn State in 2002. And then we were national champions in 2003 against the University of Illinois. And that was actually at the first collegiate rugby stadium in Stanford, California, that championship. So I think it turned out okay. (laughs) again <laughs> where, okay, maybe I won't be a soccer player, but now I get to, to catch and run and kick and then tackle. And it was just the perfect sport for me. And I, I really enjoyed it and made some lifelong friends.
0: And so with the Air Force education, how did you pick what specialty to focus on there?
1: So a couple things, you choose your major just like you would any other college. But As you're approaching your junior and senior year as a college student, you have to start picking your Air Force career. So you get to choose kind of your top five and your top five bases. But then the Air Force also has a say in where you go because it is a four-year scholarship, but it's a five-year commitment after graduation to basically pay back that scholarship that the Air Force gave you. And so kind of a strange story, but I was planning to go to navigator school to be in the backseat of a fighter or a bomber. And I was applying for a height waiver because I was too short to fly as a pilot. And around halfway through my vacation after graduation, I get a phone call. And they said, is this Lieutenant Hamilton Brown? That was my maiden name. I said, yeah, this is she. And hey, do you still want a pilot slot? Because if you do, you need to do all this paperwork and go to these bases and sit in an airplane with a flight surgeon. But if you can prove you can deflect all the flight controls you can get a waiver and you can actually go to pilot school. You can't fly helicopters or fighters because you're too short for that, but you can fly heavies, your big airplanes, because the seats move up and down. They're designed for commercial air travel. I said, heck yeah, I want that. So that was kind of my journey into becoming a pilot and going to pilot training. It did not present itself until after I had graduated. So it was a bit of a serendipitous turn to become a pilot.
0: Can you share with our listeners all the different types of aircraft that Out there, and what you flew in particular?
1: Most people know airplanes from the back of a passenger aircraft. So, if you're flying in and out of a small airport, like I live near Cincinnati, you're most likely going to take a regional airplane. It's a single aisle, maybe one or two seats on either side. That's called a regional jet. When you start going international, you have what they call wide bodies, and those have two aisles a lot of times. So, you've got like those four seats in the middle and then three on either end. That's a wide body. So I flew the KC-10, which is a wide body aircraft. It can be up to 500,000 pounds when it's full of gas or full of cargo. And the empty weight of that airplane without gas or cargo is 250,000 pounds. It just gives you an appreciation that it can double its size by all that it can carry. That's considered your far airlifter, your tanker that can refuel other aircraft in flight. So if you've ever seen the movie Air Force One, it's kind of dating myself, but that aircraft that came in front of the Air Force One that refueled it was a KC 10. You've probably seen other videos of it, but that's what a tanker aircraft is. That's what I flew in the Air Force. You also have your fighters, your fast movers, where they have ejection seats. They normally carry ordnance, bombs on the wings, may have a, a gun on the front of it. Those are fighter aircraft. And then you have lots of other types. You have your intel, surveillance, reconnaissance. I also flew a small propeller. You might call it a spy airplane, but that's the type of airplane I've flown before too. A uh, small propeller, uh, two engine aircraft. So you've got different types and they're different sizes. And then of course you've got your helicopter fleet with the army, the Navy, and even the Air Force have a helicopter fleet. So it can really run the gambit of what type of aircraft you choose out of pilot training. Sometimes the airplane chooses you. Sometimes you get to choose the airplane. It depends on what the needs of the Air Force are.
0: Very cool. And then what about the nomenclature of the pilots itself? There's fighter pilot, there's combat pilot.
1: So fighter pilots are kind of your top gun. You see the movie Top Gun. I think Tom Cruise is coming out with a sequel, the 80s favorite. And that is a Navy-based show, but there are plenty of other Air Force-based things that you've probably seen out there. But so fighters, you get into the aircraft, maybe there's one other person in the back, your navigator your Maverick and your Goose, those are fighters. They carry your ordnance, drop bombs on target. They move very fast over the speed of sound, sometimes two or three times the speed of sound. The airplane I flew was a tanker and that could go about 80% of the speed of sound, so it's 0.8 Mach. It can still go pretty fast, but its role is to carry cargo people and things. Now being a combat pilot has to do with where you're flying. So for instance, during the Iraq and Afghanistan wars that I participated in, it had to do with when you're flying over the Iraq combat space, when you're concerned that you could get shot down by small arms fire, when you're concerned in Afghanistan that if a guy standing on the mountain ridge had a rocket propelled grenade on their shoulder, that they could reasonably shoot your aircraft down, or other things like that. So it has to do with the threat, and that's what's considered being a combat aviator. What happens is once you've Accomplished a certain amount of flights in combat, you can actually earn what they call an air medal. And those air medals, if you've acquired about 20 consecutive missions in a certain amount of time, then that's considered qualifying for an air medal. I have eight air medals. So I have over 200 combat missions over Iraq and Afghanistan, but the air medal is achieved by having so many in a short amount of time. So that's why I only have eight, because I deployed five different times in different locations and it's pretty tough to get air medals in the era of Operation Iraqi Freedom or Operation Enduring Freedom. There are lots of opportunities to get air medals, Ian.
0: Congratulations for receiving all of those. Rewinding a little bit, so you'd mentioned all the different types of aircrafts and then you are a five foot two airman. How in the world did you pick the KC ten or did it pick you?
1: A little bit of both. Like I talked about that because of my height, I couldn't fly fighters or helicopters. So and narrowed the scope to mostly cargo aircraft or intel reconnaissance surveillance aircraft. And so I chose a Mighty KC-10. They've got two great locations on both coasts, one at McGuire Air Force Base in South Jersey in the Philadelphia suburbs, and the other one in Travis Air Force Base in California near San Francisco and Sacramento, the Bay Area. And so my very first assignment was in New Jersey at McGuire Air Force Base with my husband. He and I both met in Air Force pilot training. So we both got our first choice had the opportunity to fly intercontinental missions all over the world, Europe, Asia, and then to the Middle East out of South Jersey. So it was a great first assignment to fly the KC-10.
0: You had mentioned that you flew over 200 combat missions, but I know in preparation for this I read that over 100 of them were just over Afghanistan. Can you just share a little bit more of like what that was like and I remember one part you said fear has no place here when I asked you just the levels of anxiety and pressure, but if you could just share a little bit more about that experience.
1: So half of my combat time is in the mighty KC-10, which was 500,000 pound aircraft, big wide body aircraft that could fly for almost 24 hours if you needed it to. So it's a lot of long flights in that aircraft. But then the mission you're asking me about is a hundred combat missions I did over Afghanistan. That was in a small airplane called the MC-12, a King Air with a small airplane at five foot two, I couldn't even stand up. We had four people. We had a pilot in the left seat, a mission commander that was myself in the right seat, a sensor operator who looked at a high speed camera and a cryptological operator in the back. And our job was to look for the Taliban during the war. And that was a difficult mission. You had a two engine propeller. You would take off and land at a Bagram air base. Oftentimes knowing that the enemy was trying to shoot you down upon takeoff and landing, what is a risk you took? Because your country was asking you to go look for the enemy. And it was an intense mission. I had to leave my husband and my 18-month-old son to go do that mission. And I knew I would be gone for a long time. I had three, four months of training before I left for Afghanistan. I was in Afghanistan for about seven months for that mission. I got there when it was snowing in January, and I left in July when it was hot. And so it just kind of shows the vast space of Afghanistan and how it's a temperate place. It changes with the weather. And it was actually a really beautiful location. When you look up at the mountains, but it was a dangerous place. We had a prison on base. That's where they kept a lot of the Taliban prisoners. And they also had mortar fire every now and then. You can never predict when it was gonna come in. So you just had to be aware of your surroundings and take cover when was necessary. And in some ways, you kind of got used to the fact that you are in a war zone. So, when I say fear has no place here, I mean, for you to get up every morning, go fly a mission, lead people, right? You've got young airmen in the airplane with you who want you to take off and land safely. If you allow yourself to be gripped by fear, you can't lead them properly. And they need you. And a lot of times they're stressed out because they're away from their families too. So, a sense of camaraderie, teamwork. And I really do believe in keeping the faith, whatever faith that is that you have as an airman or as a person. I will say as a practicing Catholic, I did regularly go to service. That helped me a lot. I'd see my fellow airmen at service that helped to have some level of uh, unit cohesion. I had roommates when I was there and friends, and we'd break bread together, and we'd try to make the best of a difficult situation. Keep in mind, they're Marines, they're soldiers, they're also In the field and even tougher situations, guys that couldn't get a shower for a long time. I had access to a shower and running water. So it was always kept relative again to the threat and what we were exposed to, but also what our brothers and sisters and our sister services were dealing with in a combat zone.
0: Oh, that's an amazing perspective. And first off, I would just want to say thank you for having that feeling of duty and executing on that, because that is just, I mean, truly heroic. You had mentioned that you were gone from your toddler for a very long time. What was that like for you?
1: Well, I was not happy about it. Let's put it that way. I remember when I got my orders, we were stationed at the Air Force Academy where I was an instructor pilot flying really small propellers. And I loved my mission to support the cadets. And I didn't want to leave that assignment. It was such a great opportunity to be with family. But the duty called. We were in the thick of the war it was 2012. And my commander says, hey, they want you to go to Afghanistan. And I said, okay, what does that mean? And I learned more about it. And my husband was super supportive. He's also an Air Force pilot. So he had actually already been to Afghanistan and kind of knew what I was going to see and do. But nobody really knows what to tell you or how to prepare you. And not everybody, not every pilot has been to Bagram. Not every pilot has been to that level of combat engagement with the enemy. And there are some that have seen even more action. So it just depends on your perspective. But leaving Wyatt and Rob was very difficult. You just never can prepare yourself like he's raised his child since he was born and now he's 18 months old and you're leaving him. And most parents have to prepare themselves for their kids leaving for college, not the mother leaving for the desert or leaving for Afghanistan. So the best I can say is that I try to stay connected with them. I try to make phone calls often. Skype was pretty terrible. The signal was pretty bad out of Afghanistan, so I didn't get to see him that much. I just celebrated my youngest son, Henry's second birthday yesterday, and it reminded me that I missed Wyatt, my oldest, his second birthday, and I happened to be in a place where I had a good internet connection. I actually could see his birthday party back in 2012, so it's tough, Ian, for those, and people are still doing it right now. They're deployed moms and deployed dads that are away from their kids, that are doing the mission of our country, and they've done it multiple times. But it's something that you pray a lot, you try to connect as much as you can with your family, but it's a difficult thing to do, is leave your family and leave your young kids.
0: I can't even imagine. And again, thank you for your duty, as I think we're going on month seven or eight of this pandemic, and I think a lot of parents are more exposed to their kids than ever before. And I think the general complaint is, wow, that's a lot of time with my children. But I think on the other side, the idea to leave them for that long of a period is just something that I don't think many can comprehend. So we could talk about your combat pilot background for hours and hours, but that was just part of it. So you were in the Air Force for about 10 years. You served your 10-year commitment. What did you do after that?
1: All total, I did 12 and a half years of active service because pilot training is about a year long. So it's a long path to get your wings and 10 years to do all of that commitment, but when my commitment was over in twenty fifteen, I was actually stationed at Travis Air Force Base in California flying a KC ten again. So I had two separate KC ten assignments. And upon reflection, I'm married to an airline pilot. So after he finished his Air Force career, he went on to fly for the regional airlines for the ExpressJet. And so between my flying intercontinental to deployed location and his flying all over the country. We decided to settle down. And so GE Aviation, the company I work for now, has this fantastic veterans leadership program. If you're a veteran listening to the program, it's called JOLP. It's a junior officer leadership program. It is designed for veterans leaving the military, officers that want to explore corporate America and learn about business. And so it's a two-year, eight-month rotation program. So there's three eight-month rotations, and you learn about the business. And GE moves me to Cincinnati. I live in Mason, just north of the city, uh, to be part of their GE Aviation headquarters. So I learned about a commercial airline business. After having been a pilot and flown GE products in combat, I actually knew a lot about aviation. I just needed to hone my business skills and learn more about an engineering company like GE Aviation.
0: And we could continue on with that with your career at GE Aviation and that GELP program sounds fantastic. But we also completely bypassed your campaign experience. And if you don't mind just sharing a bit more about that, because it was certainly a very impactful part of your story, what your experience was like on the campaign trail.
1: So a couple things, as you probably recall, back in 2016, 2017, we could kind of feel the ground shake beneath us where a lot of women started getting involved in local politics and national politics. And I felt this calling President Obama as he was giving his farewell address said, hey, if you don't like what you see in your government, pick up a clipboard and run. And I literally did that. We got petition signed for me to run for a state rep in 2018, had a lot of backing from local suburban women in in Mason, Ohio, and ran in 2018 for state representative and had some great results, moved the needle eight points in an area that wasn't super friendly to Democrats, but We showed a lot of progress and a lot of people engaged in the political system in a way they never had been before. And so we took that momentum again in 2018, and I ran again in 2019 for U.S. Congress in the same geographical area, but then grew seven times to run in a congressional race in Ohio's first congressional district. And again, you're taking that same energy from the suburban moms and housewives and the suburban working moms to really keep driving those conversations, have women be at the table. The campaign. And it was exhilarating and exciting. And I had the support of my husband. And all the while in that 18 race, I actually had my son Henry on the campaign trail. I found out the day that I had petition signed that I was pregnant with him. So it was a whirlwind 2018. And a lot of the things that we saw in the 18 race compelled us to run again. And I'll tell you now it's a chance in 2020 to kind of catch my breath and see what's next.
0: What were the biggest lessons learned from both campaign trails?
1: Well, I think what's really interesting, in about our political process, being the daughter of two immigrants from a blue-collar working-class family, like, I don't know if I talked much about my dad in the beginning, but dad was an auto mechanic. He worked with his hands. He came home with sweat on his arms and metal shavings in his hair from being under a car all day, and I really respect my father for the hard work he put forth to raise us kids, but that also comes with some humility, and knowing that you don't come from a whole lot of money. And there's a lot of fundraising involved with political campaigns. And I raised about a half a million dollars in my race. And that was a $70 average for each one of my donors. And so that's what it's like being from a blue collar working class immigrant family to run for Congress. It's every single dollar. It's the hustle. It's the hard work. I can't wait for the day when we start taking big money out of politics because. A lot of working class families could use people like myself representing them because I understand what it takes to put food on the table and and that struggle. My husband was raised by a single mom in a steel mill town. So we've kind of seen some of the struggles it takes to get to where we are and we want to keep fighting for those families. So I don't know exactly what the next step is to do that, but I feel like the best way I can do it is see other candidates that are like myself that put integrity first that work hard, and I found some candidates like that in my backyard that I can support, and all across the country, because there's a lot of good people who are trying to do the right thing for our country.
0: Speaking of values, what are some of the core values from the Air Force Academy that has stuck with you?
1: We have an honor code there. I'm actually still a recruiter. I'm an admissions liaison officer for the Air Force Academy, so I regularly recruit young high school kids to come go to school there, and the honor code really says a lot about who you are, I will not lie, cheat, or steal, nor tolerate among us anyone who does. And that level of integrity goes through your entire academic experience, but then it moves on to your career as a pilot, as an aviator, as an officer. If you have as much standards to maintain, either be it in the airplane, you have to get those checklists done. You have to follow every step, because if you skip a step, that could be the difference between life and death. It could be a safety incident. So you have to follow those steps, and have that integrity to say, yes, I did all those things that I said I would do. That's integrity first. Then there's service before self. Remember we talked about what it's like to be in combat is you've got other people to serve. You've got to put someone else's interest ahead of your own. That's part of our ethos. And lastly, it's excellence in all we do. And they've all stuck with me. And it's excellence in all you do is maybe you're not the absolute best at it, but you're working your hardest you're determined. And each one of those things, I think, sticks with me. And now I'm at GE Aviation as a Communications leader for our military business. And a lot of those things still hold true. That level of commitment to your customers. Our customers are now military customers to provide them with military engines. There's this level of engagement with your community and your fellow military leaders. And so they translate no matter what you're doing, whether you're a cadet trying to follow the rules in academia, whether you're an officer in combat, and whether you're a businesswoman or even a candidate on the campaign trail should have that same level of excellence for yourself and the people around you, and that's what's kind of resonated over the years.
0: But one thing I would love to just hear your thoughts on, I know that mental health and strength is a really tough thing to balance, both in the academy, when you're actually in combat, and certainly after your experience there. Can you just talk a bit more about that? Cause you seem so strong. But I know there's a lot more to that, and it's a much more complex topic. So I would just love to hear your perspective and share with that with our listeners.
1: What I learned are from my fellow Ruggers. So there was a girlfriend of mine, her name is Eva Bellinger, and she was in combat in Iraq, and she came home and was suffering from PTSD, but wasn't quite sure about how it was manifesting itself. And she had done some testimonies online, and i had seen it after I got back from Afghanistan. And I was inspired by her vulnerability, her willingness to talk about her PTSD. She started a nonprofit in Southern California and helped veterans by going on nature hikes and ways to engage with each other and help to recuperate after trauma. And I reflected on my own time and what that meant for me after coming back from Afghanistan. And I, at some level, thought, well, maybe it's post-traumatic stress is what I'm going through when I came back from Afghanistan in like 2012, 2013, a lot of stress involved with Reintegrating into the family. What does a good wife look like? What does a good mother look like? How can a mother leave her child? Like a lot of guilt. And when I found out after probably years worth of counseling that I have some anxiety. And so I see a counselor, the VA pays for it. I'm still a reservist, the Air Force Reserves know about it, and I can be my authentic self. And so I think that the more that we are brave enough to talk about the fact that, hey, sometimes we do need to talk to somebody. It's okay to engage and to have that help, and that takes a lot of humility, a lot of vulnerability. But in some cases, our families need it. They need our true, authentic self—not somebody that we're trying to be, but somebody we really are. And I hope this story like helps other veterans, other moms. That hey, you may be having a hard day, and you think, well, how is she doing it? Well, I see a therapist, <laughs> and I ask for help. And if I can't see my therapist, then I will call my sister who's my best friend and she practices mindfulness. And I'm all about different ways of healing, whether it be massage therapy, my stepmom and my sister-in-law are both massage therapists. I really believe in exercise. So whether that's several times a week, three or four times I try to strive for, my brother's a fitness guru, he's a physical trainer. It's kind of the trifecta there, yeah. And It's not just one approach. It can't just be therapy. You've got to get out and move, get the body moving, and some of it's massage for me. And that helps, but we're all a work in progress, my friend.
0: <laughs> I love that. Well, first of all, thank you for sharing that. I think that it's super important. I know we talked about this before, but I really do think it's so important to share because other people just assume, no, that person has all their stuff together. But no, it, it takes a village, but it also takes... A lot of focus to give yourself time. And so I appreciate you sharing that. Thank you. And during that time when you left your son, you also left your husband for a very long period of time. What kind of stresses impact the marriage as you guys are both literally flying around the world?
1: When you meet in pilot training, you know that you're not going to see each other much. You don't really understand what that reality is going to be like because you meet when you're courting, you normally meet and spend all the waking moments together. But quickly, we moved to South Jersey, and we were separated for a couple months. And then once we both got qualified in the KC-10, I mean, there was one year where I was away for about 180 days from our house in South Jersey, and he was away from 200 of it. The only time we get to see each other was in the desert. We'd purposefully pick up deployments so we'd see each other in the summer. And so we couldn't fly in the same airplane together, but we could at least make sure that we were deployed at the same time at the same place. Maybe we'd see each other at a meal. They wouldn't let us room together. And so when I was deployed to Afghanistan, it was my first deployment without my husband. I had done three with him, and the fourth one I did it without him. And it was difficult because he was my anchor, somebody I could talk to and share things with. And it was hard coming back from Afghanistan because normally I could share what my missions were like, I could share what the stressors were like, and he would know. And it was hard coming back and him not understanding what a mission to look for the Taliban was like, or what the food was like in Afghanistan. And I actually really started to appreciate what a military spouse goes through when we leave, because a lot of times they don't know all those things, and they support us and love us anyway. I mean, just little things he dealt with, yin, like changing Wyatt's diaper, like a bathroom floor, because there's no changing tables in a men's room. Just things that he had to deal with that hopefully now in 2020, there's more accessibility, but being a working or stay-at-home dad or even a working dad, it's challenging. And we have to give respect and credence to what a lot of dads are doing to help raise our children too. Who or what
0: inspires you?
1: I think it goes back to our immigrant story. My Oma and Opa, uh, my grandparents came over to Massachusetts in the 60s. Neither one of them spoke English. They spoke Dutch and they had to learn English when they came here But my grandfather worked three jobs at one point in time. My grandmother raised four kids and also cleaned houses, cleaned toilets. Their names are carved on the wall at Ellis Island. They had an opportunity to get their names put on the wall. I'm very proud of their immigrant story. My Lola on my Filipino side, she came over here from the Philippines with four kids as a single mom in the 60s. And she had some family over here, but she had a lot of courage starting over again was a lot of violence in Manila. There actually was a murder on their street before they left. Both of the set of my grandparents had to show a lot of courage coming over here. And then my parents had to show a lot of courage raising a family and trying to find a good quality public education so that we could be afforded good opportunities later in life. The thing that has kind of followed me throughout that is that level of driving for excellence, but working as hard as you can in everything that you do And I felt a huge amount of responsibility to keep that tradition strong, which is why I applied for the Air Force Academy, why I tried for a pilot spot, not knowing whether it would work out, why I decided to run for Congress, knowing that it would be a tall order coming from my humble beginnings. But I think that the cool thing about all this is the example that we're setting for our kids is that you see how my grandparents worked so hard. And then the next generation did the same thing. And they're making these incremental moves to be part of that American story. And I hope my kids can reflect on both mine and Rob's story, my husband, and what that says to them and what their story is going to look like. So the inspiration comes from generations of hard work, determination, not giving up, resiliency, and hoping my kids learn from that and can grow just as well.
0: Well, your boys are very lucky to have a mom like you and a role model in their mom. Speaking of, do you have a mentor or role model that has helped you in terms of thinking a certain way or shaping your mindset?
1: It comes from different places throughout my career. So I've had rugby coaches that have been tough love when I needed it. I've had my parents who have continued to love me throughout my journey. My mother-in-law, she's helped me throughout my business career. Connie Pillich, she ran for governor here in Ohio and was my chairwoman of my congressional campaign and fellow veteran, fellow Air Force veteran, who's lifted me up. And so I bring up all those different people because I believe there's certain people in your life that are there to be your conscience, to be your guide, to love and nurture you. But it's okay to get different sets of coaching from different people and be willing to accept help from all different places. And you'll be surprised what you get if you're open to suggestion and to love from unexpected places.
0: One woman I interviewed, Kelly Reed Brennan, she's the head of ETF trading at Citadel Securities. And she called it her personal board of directors. And I love that concept that (laughs) you can kind of pick and choose your own personal board. And so for her, she was talking about outside of the field of finance and investments. And I just love that concept so much because it instantly helps you think, okay, how many people in my life do I really admire, respect, get advice from, and all that. So I love that. So it sounds like you're talking about a similar framework of board of directors personally.
1: I'm going to keep that one because I think it's quite true. I've never kind of gone and done something based on the advice of one. I will pull many because I believe that that's where you get some of the best ideas are from different perspectives.
0: Absolutely. I love that. What are you most proud of so far?
1: I think I'm most proud of that American story, that how you get older, Yen, and you start to reflect on where you came from. Well, like, I'm really proud that my grandmother, she's 90 years old this year. Her name is Martina Vanderly, and English is her second language. But she wrote a book, and it says, Our Dutch Heritage on it. And it has all these primary source documents of who we are, where we come from, both the Dutch and the Indonesian side. And, like, what a gift to give to your grandkids and to the next generation to share with them who we are and where we come from. I think that that's what I'm proud of is the fact that she passed that down to us and now it's our opportunity to share our stories with the world. And I say our because we have regular calls as a family, as a Vanderlee family, that was my mother's maiden name, to re-engage with each other and see what we're all doing with ourselves and touching communities and lives in big and small ways. So it's kind of just a celebration of that immigrant story and, and I just couldn't be prouder.
0: Oh, I love that so much. There's one author, her name is Martha Tolls, and she is 99 years young this year, but she, during her whole interview process, I loved it so much. And at the very end, she wanted to share or suggest to people what your grandmother did and what she is doing in that, tell older people to write memoirs because there is so much history and richness in these stories that goes away. And unless you share them, they really can't be passed on. And so I'm looking forward So reading that book from your grandmother, I'm sure I will enjoy it. Now, going with the theme of the show, I always end the question with, it used to be one of your biggest failures or struggles, but it's evolved to be much more of a growth mindset and thinking, can you name or share one of your biggest growth moments? And inevitably, it includes struggle or some type of adversity, but I'd love to hear from you what's one of your biggest growth moments.
1: It goes back to that story I talked to you about being a soccer recruit you imagine being a senior in high school and you tell everybody I'm going to go to the Air Force Academy and I'm going to play soccer and I've played soccer my entire youth career as a an athlete and you show up and you're there for a week and you work really hard and coach is like Eddie why don't you be a manager and it's just such a letdown and it's already hard enough being thousands of miles away from home and being told that you're not good enough for the soccer team and I mean, I could have packed up and come home. I could have called my parents and been like, you know what? I may have finished boot camp, but I'm gone. I'm leaving this place. At a young age, I think I just turned 18. All right, well, what other sports are there? Like, I'm going to go follow Jess and go play rugby over here. And it was the decision. When you're young, and even as we grow older, being able to pivot from that failure and not see it as a defining moment, but to see it as an opportunity And I think that I've got lots of examples of that throughout my Air Force and my civilian career are, okay, so it didn't work out. Well, you have like a day to feel sorry for yourself. Now what? Because you still have to survive. You still have to, in my case, I had a scholarship to the Air Force Academy. I didn't need soccer to stay there as a student. I could stay. I got into the school of my choice, my very first choice. So do something else. And so I think that's what any type of failure, any type of growth moment can teach us is, okay, so now what? If you're able to be resilient and to pivot, that is where survival turns into thriving. Love that. I think that the more that we can do that, the better that we grow as individuals. But I want to share with you like who the people are that I engage with on the rugby pitch that have been part of my life. Fellow combat pilots, fellow war heroes. My friend Adriana, 2002 graduate, she was a national champion with me. We buried her in Arlington back in 2016, in February. She was killed in action in Afghanistan. And I can say, Yen, that I played rugby with her and I won a championship with her and I will always have great memories with her. Some of these women are now moms and wives and they're just these amazing people. So What seemed to be a speed bump in the road turned out to be probably the best thing that could have ever happened to me.
0: Love that. Well, your mindset seems to be so strong and positive. What's next for Nikki Foster?
1: Watching my kids grow up between the deployments, the campaigns, I was kind of accustomed to putting other people's needs ahead of my family's. And I think COVID and the campaign loss in 2020 were a way for me to kind of reprioritize my life. And so also a work in progress. I'm lucky to have my husband, Rob, who is an airline pilot, be home with Henry quite a lot these days because there's less travel going on. But I really love my new role at GE Aviation as a communicator for the military business. I feel like I'm back at home with my military products, my military brothers and sisters, a lot of veterans in this business. I get to work for two veterans, Tony Mathis is a VP of our business, and Jamie Regg is also an Army veteran. I get to work with him. He's a communications leader of GE Aviation, so very lucky to be in the position I'm in where I can still work in aviation where I'm very passionate and continue to stay engaged with my fellow suburban moms. We write postcards together. We engage with voters. We give the candidates that we feel strongly and passionately about. I've got a friend, a GE who's running for Ohio State Senate right now, his name is Mark Fogel. So there's different ways I've found to get engaged and still feel like I'm participating, but other ways where I've decided to purposefully dial back and give myself and my family that time and space that we need after such a adrenaline rush of the last few years.
0: <laughs> to say this, well, Nikki, thank you so much for your time. And this was a wonderful conversation.
1: Thank you, Yin. It's such a pleasure. I love your show. I'm going to continue to listen and thank you for helping people tell their stories.